We are in part 16 of our 19-part series through the book of Hebrews. And the series is entitled, Our Faithful High Priest. I entitled this morning's message, From Faith to Faithfulness. And I want to begin with some concepts. It's a theme or a thread that I've been working through the last several weeks as we've been in the Hall of Faith, talking about men and women that are extraordinary actors of faith. Throughout history, and I'll merely say these concepts as I lead you toward the fill in the blank on the sheet that was handed to you at the front door. It's simply this You do what you believe. You do what you believe. If there is a limitation to your walk with God, it is because that it is attached to your belief system. What do I mean? Let's be practical. If you struggle with reading the Word of God, It is because ultimately you believe certain things about it. It may be things like, you know what? Some of that stuff applies to me, but most of it really doesn't apply to me. I don't know why I need to kill myself trying to read something that sounds a little bit like Shakespeare. I have to go through all this extra effort when ultimately I'm only gaining knowledge. Why do I need more knowledge? I'm already convinced. I already believe in the Lord. So why should I put forth all the effort to daily spend time in a book learning more information? That's going to lead to a challenge in reading the word of God, because that's not actually what it's for. But if you believe that, it makes it very difficult to read. If you struggle with a prayer life, you may believe things like, I don't think God's listening to me. If God is listening to me, he's certainly not going to do anything about it. I tried the prayer thing a couple times. It didn't work. I ask God for this, bad things happen, clearly it only has a Russian roulette concept, you spin the wheel, every once in a while it happens, but I'm not going to do that every day and be disappointed time after time after time. I do not believe that God will alter the universe on my behalf. So ultimately, I'm merely asking a guy who pretty much has it nailed down anyway. It seems rather foolish for me as a human being limited to ask an infinite God to alter when I don't know what I'm doing. Do you understand how those beliefs affect your prayer life? All right. If you struggle with worship. And I'm talking about worship and song and kind of that first portion of the service. There may be a number of reasons why you do, but some of it may be, I can't connect to the words. It keeps saying, oh, God is all this and he's super compassionate and everything. You know what? I don't have anything to relate that to. I haven't been connected with God all week long. So now all of a sudden I'm in here and I don't see why me singing a song about something that I don't connect to has any value. I don't understand why, hey, let everybody else sing. Clearly, they're all into it. I'm just not seeing it in my world. God really enjoys music? That's kind of silly. Really? Those types of beliefs will alter how you worship. Finally, if you struggle with habitual sin, it is likely that you ultimately believe that it's not that big of a deal and that God understands. I mean, I do so many good things. The fact that I have areas that are like me areas, you know what? I've earned those. I mean, I have done such a great job. I try to be a good person all the time. And so if there's areas where I'm choking on, 
It's not like God doesn't know I'm human. It's not like God doesn't get it. So really, I mean, I can say I'm never going to be sinless. So there's really no point in me struggling through and trying to break through that. That doesn't make sense. You will do what you believe. Unfortunately, most of us are not willing to put forth the effort to dig down and change what we believe. We just try harder to alter the outcome. Well, I'm just going to strain harder. I'm just going to try more. I'm just going to read the Bible even though I don't care. I'm just going to pray even though I don't believe it works. I'm just going to continue to try to stop and struggle against that sin even though I don't know why it's occurring in the first place. Do you understand why that's futile? If we don't change the foundation, we never understand why there's always cracks in our walls. Does that make sense? Now, if we don't really believe what God says, we won't consistently live a life of faith. We will make erratic choices, live inconsistent lives, which leads to chaotic outcomes and drama. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is simply this. A shaky faith leads to an unstable life. A shaky faith leads to an unstable life. On the other hand, if we truly believe that we are part of the family of God, that we serve the Almighty who knows no limits, that we can partner in the alteration of the universe, that through Him water can become solid... Fire becomes air. Limitation is illusory. Walls tumble down. Food is multiplied. Miracle babies are born and people rise from the dead. If that is so, we live with a radically different mindset. Through the Hall of Faith, we have learned about men like Enoch, who knew God so well in such a depraved, difficult, lonely existence that God altered the natural course of humanity and didn't allow him to have pain, sorrow, or death, but merely translated him in peace into the presence of God. We learn about Noah, who built a boat for water he didn't see and a flood he could not even dream of. We learned about Abraham, who left everything he knew to go to a promised land, which he never ultimately owned, had children at 100, and was willing to slaughter his precious child of promise, believing that God could raise him from the dead. Do we live lives like that? That's the challenge for us today. Are we living in such a way that we allow God to dictate our reality, that the limitations of this world are mere suggestions to God, and that he can violate those, alter those at a whim? He makes the rules. He breaks the rules if he wants to. So that which is a limitation to us is not a limitation to him. Therefore, we are to walk by faith, not by sight. Amen? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. We're going to go through the end and finish out the hall of faith. Talk about some of the most incredible stories in the entire Bible. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. Let's read through it. We'll pray about it. We'll go back and tear it apart. Here we go. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid. 
of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith. The people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, They should not be made perfect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we be infused with faith that as we drink in these stories of truth and fact and history, may they show us that our future can be different. That, Lord, that even our present is not what we think it is. Lord, allow us to have eyes to see. May the scales drop from our lenses that we might be able to see the supernatural around us. God, show us the chariots of fire on the hills. Show us your angels that defend us. Show us your love in reality. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pick it up in verse 23. By faith... Believing the unseen, Moses, who's referred to 11 times in the book of Hebrews, whose story is told from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, through Deuteronomy, shutting down at the beginning of Joshua, in which you must read, Moses, the big deal in the Jewish faith and in our history. By faith, Moses, when he was born about 1480 B.C., about 3,500 years ago in history. When he was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Do you remember the story? The story went something like this. A man by the name of Amram, a woman by the name of Jochebed, two Levites got married, had three kids, 
Oldest was a girl. Her name was Miriam. Three-year-old boy in the story, his name was Aaron. Then they had a baby. You would assume that the baby would be a blessing, but unfortunately it came at a time in history when babies were being slaughtered. Now, I would imagine that if you got pregnant during that time, fear would fill your heart because Pharaoh was sick and tired of the Hebrews multiplying and sent out a law that said all Hebrew baby boys that are born are to be destroyed and thrown into the Nile River to die. Imagine the fear that comes into the parents' hearts. It says when the child was born, they saw that he was beautiful. Now, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, recounts history and says the exact same phrase. What does that mean? What does it mean he saw his child was beautiful? It's not like they went, man, our first two were ugly. And now we finally got a good-looking one. we got to hang on to this one, right? Because we all know no parents realize that their kids are ugly. We know that. Come on. What does it mean when it says that they saw the child was beautiful? We don't know. Those are the only two references, and they only reference Moses. What it appears to mean is something was marked out as unique, as almost like a touch of God on that child that made them say, God is going to preserve this child regardless. Therefore, we will do everything in our power to make sure that he thrives and succeeds. So they come up with one of the most odd and idiotic plans I've ever heard of. They tried to hide him for three months. Eventually, they were going to get outed. There's all kinds of folklore about how the Egyptians would find hidden children and all this stuff. I don't have time to get into it, but those are all great things to research. And ultimately, they came up with this plan. Let's put a little baby boat, stick him in the Nile where all the children are to be thrown to die, and let's float him down into the hands of Pharaoh's household. Do we all see how odd that is? He's the one that issued the edict that they are to die. So why they came up with that plan, I have no idea. So they make baby boat, right? And they send it down the Nile, and Sister Miriam is supposed to chase after it and make sure he's not eaten by hippo or crocodile or whatever. That would have made the whole story a lot shorter. He floats down, rolls up on where Pharaoh's daughter is bathing. Now... This is also very ironic because she's in there bathing and a baby floats up. She opens up the thing and immediately knows he's a Hebrew baby boy. Why? Because he's circumcised. Right off the bat, she knows that her dad issued they all die. But now she has one in her hands. Well, that's different when you see the little baby for yourself. I don't know if she could have kids. I don't know what was going on in her life. But for whatever reason, she clung to that baby. Now, Jewish folklore says Gabriel the angel smacked Moses in the ears to make him cry. And you're like, why? He said, because he was so cute that if he would pucker up and cry, she could never let him go. You're like, what? I don't think Gabriel hit the kid. I mean, I don't don't think that's legit. I mean, I I think that's fake, but whatever. (laughs) Then all of a sudden, a girl pops out of the reeds. Hey. And you're like, how long have you been standing there? I've been taking a bath this whole time. This is weird. Why is everybody hanging out with me? 
do you need someone to nurse that child, right? Which is just odd. And she's like, you know what I do? And she goes, hold on, I'm going to go get a Hebrew woman. Now, this is awesome. I believe every mom should do this. And here's why. Because then the mom got paid to nurse her own child. That is awesome. How can you work it where someone else pays you to take care of your own kids? God orchestrated, negotiated the deal. And they had a chance to raise up Moses in their house partially while being paid by Pharaoh. And then they handed him over into the palace where he lived for 40 years. He was trained in all the best knowledge, resources, language. There are all types of folklore about he was the most handsome and everyone stopped their work when he walked by, whatever. And the whole thing was that he was the most brilliant of all children and all this stuff. I don't know. I know he received an incredible education. Now, just like Joseph, he looks Egyptian. He is Egyptian because he was raised in the very palace of Pharaoh. And we pick up the next story. Verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, when he was 40 years old, Refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ. Christ? He was 1,500 years before Jesus shows up. Where did that come from? Because the Bible is Christ-centric, which means everything backwards and everything forwards ultimately ends up into the body of Christ. So whatever pain or persecution that is received on God's people is an attack on Jesus Christ. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He wanted what was right, not what was easy. You remember this story. Moses comes out at 40 years old, looking Egyptian, looking brilliant, looking stunning, has his eyeliner on that goes back like this. He's all muscular and tanned and he comes out and he decides he's going to go check out his roots. So he goes out and he's been looking at these people from the palace for a long time, sees all his fellow Hebrew buddies getting just beaten up by the Egyptians and his heart goes out to them and he determines, I believe I have a calling on my life. I'm going to do something about this. I will be the deliverer of Israel. Goes up, sees an Egyptian beating down a Hebrew slave. Moses will not stand for it. His anger fires up and he kills the guy and buries him in the sand. Now he assumes no one saw that. He goes back to the palace. I will deliver him one by one. Right? I will kill every Egyptian with my own hands. Now, I appreciate his ambition. However, he did have a calling on his life that he would be the deliverer of Israel. The problem was timing. Some of you may be given visions of what you will do, and God has you in a holding pattern for the right timing. That does not mean you don't have the calling. It means we're not there yet. In that timing issue, God alters things. Sure enough, he comes out the next day, wants to go do it again. Look at me. I'm the big deliverer of Israel. Rolls up on a bunch of Hebrew guys arguing, hey, guys, hold up, hold up. Moses is here. They're like, who are you? He's like, what do you mean, who am I? I'm the massive Moses. And they're like, you are a joke. I don't know who you think you are, but for the last 40 years, we haven't been hanging out eating spaghetti. We've been sitting down here. 
having a hard life getting beat up while you look all perfumed and nice. So quite frankly, I don't want your leadership. I don't want you around me. You need to go. What are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? You saw that? (laughs) Yeah, we all know. Well, if you know, then granddad knows. Oh, shoot. And it says, and Pharaoh tried to kill Moses. He will not have that in his own household. Somebody to reject him, resist him, rebel against him, and lead a rebellion of the Hebrew people. And Moses flees to Midian and hides out in the desert. What's intriguing is that the next phrase is 40 years later. By faith... He left Egypt. Now we go, is that Midian? Is that the Passover, uh, uh, the Exodus? You can argue about that. Not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. But by faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. What? Now, if you're new to the Bible, that's weird. That just sounds, who's the destroyer? Why are they sprinkling blood, right? Let me tell you the story. So Moses, now 80, God had him in a holding pattern in the world of nothingness for 40 years till he didn't want to lead anymore. Then God goes, and now you're ready. That's frustrating. (laughs) Moses, who originally was labeled according to Stephen as he was trained in Egypt and he was mighty in words and in deeds. Now, 40 years later, tells God he can't talk very well. Well, that's intriguing. Was that accurate? I don't know. Now God asks him to go in and lead his people out, gives him the ability to lead to rain down 10 plagues upon Egypt. The last is the most severe. An angel was to sweep through and cause death in all of Egypt, killing the firstborn child in every house that does not have faith. How would they know which houses have faith? God said, Moses, tell everyone to slaughter a lamb, put the blood on the doorframe, pause. Does everybody get the Jesus references? I don't want to have to go through this, right? Come on. All right. The lamb of the world that was slain and his blood was put on. Oh, look, it's a wooden beam across the door, just like the cross. Oh, can we see all the tie-ins? Right? All right, cool. We're going to move on. That's a whole nother message. All right, then whoever had the blood on their door frame, the angel of death would pass over that house and go to the next one. That's why it's called Passover. We do not need to make things rocket science. I love when the description is in the name. What does Passover mean? It means to pass over. Well, there you go. That was an act of faith. Moses, why are we doing this? Because God asked us to. This is weird. Yes, I know. What if we just start all randomly killing lambs and nothing happens? I don't know. I'm not even counting on that. I will tell you this. We're going to do this forever. And they made a lasting ordinance about it the night before it happened. That's a big amount of faith. It says, by faith, verse 29, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. You know that story? Sure enough, they get a chance to leave, and then Pharaoh changes his mind, sends his whole army after them. They're caught between a rock and a hard place. We're all going to die. We can't move forward that the Red Sea's in front of us. We can't go backwards. Here come the Egyptians. And then God moved. 
and took the pillar of cloud by day that was guiding them, moved around behind them, and cast the Egyptians into darkness to make them hold. Meanwhile, the people are scared out of their minds. Moses, his faith translated to the people. He said, guys, hold on a second. God, what are we doing? Hold up your stick. All right. And the wall of water began to pull back. And he said, and we will go through. They all walk through. The pillar of cloud follows them, lures in the Egyptians into the area, and the water closes in, and the Egyptians drown. Well, that was a miraculous event. Here's a place where I need to pause and remind you of something I told you last week. A life of faith does not mean a life of fearlessness. They were scared like you would not believe. I would suggest to you that a life of faith is a life of courage, not a life of not being afraid. You can't have courage without fear. Courage means doing it anyway in the face of fear. But fear's a part of it. I know that we all think that we don't have any faith because we're afraid about stuff. That is not the truth. Faith means even though there is fear, you believe that another outcome will happen. So, so many of us just go, I must be a terrible Christian because I'm afraid of this or I'm afraid of that. That does not make you a bad Christian. Are there things that you need to conquer? Are there fears that you don't need to have? Absolutely. I'm the king of fear. I get all that. But ultimately, it does not dictate whether or not you have faith. These people were afraid. Almost every story I'm about to tell you moving forward, the Bible highlights out that they were scared when it happened. But that doesn't mean they didn't have faith. They were written down in the hall of faith. It says this, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. The first test of faith that happened to the Israelites under Joshua was to march into the promised land and to attack and take over one of the most impenetrable cities in the entire region. Massive, thick walls, only one entrance to get in and to get out. There was no way in the world they were going to get in. They sent two spies to go check it out. The spies knew it was impenetrable. When they're in there, they almost got caught, and a woman by the name of Rahab, who was a prostitute, brought them in to hide. Why they went and hung out with her, I don't know. That's another story. Maybe for a marriage conference. Now... They hid in there. Finally, she covers them, makes sure they're all right, gets them to bail out of the city, but says this, I know about your God. I've heard about your God, and I know you guys are going to win. Now, she's sitting in the impenetrable city, and she has more faith than the spies do. God will win this. When you win, I want you to save me. That act of faith put Rahab... In the hall of faith and over and over in scripture, she is heralded out as a woman of faith. What is most intriguing is who she becomes. She is Boaz's mom. You know what that means? She was Ruth's mother-in-law. How wild to start out with Naomi as your mother-in-law. Everything's about mother-in-laws, right? She starts out with Naomi as her mother-in-law, ends up moving and gets a new mother-in-law, Rahab. Whoa, what? That becomes a great-grandmother 
of David, King David, the greatest king of Israel, and is in the lineage of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This woman was extraordinary because she believed without seeing. Sure enough, God comes to Joshua and he says, here's the plan. All right, how are we going to take an impenetrable city? Well, first of all, you're not, I am, but I need you to do some stupid things for me. All right, what are we going to do? Well, I need you to march around the city. You want me to do a parade? Yeah, pretty much. I'd like you to play music, right? And then they're going around and they're walking around. Now, at first, Jericho's probably totally nervous. What are they doing? Ooh, look, it's psych ops on us. Whoa, right? No, you got, and then they're like, I'm pretty sure it's just a parade after a couple days. It's the Israel Pride Parade, apparently, where they're just going around and around and around. What are you, what are you doing, guys? You're not doing anything. We get it. Okay, last one. I want you all to be quiet. Shh. And they all go around. Now, at the last minute, let's shout. What's that going to do? All the angels are on the inside of the city going, hey, guys, we got in. <laughs> it's not hard for us. Look at us. We're inside. All right. What I want is I want you to shout. Why? Because it's my trigger word. Right? So we're all here, buddy. All I need you to do is shout. They shout glory to God. All the angels go, oh, look. And they shove the walls down. Everything falls down. They run in. Oh, this is a miracle, right? And they win the war. That's pretty awesome. And what more shall I say, verse 32? Meaning, how many more miraculous stories do I need to tell you that faith matters? For time would fail me. It would take way too long to tell you of Gideon. You remember Gideon? He's the shy farmer. Turned into a warrior, reluctant warrior, who takes an army of 32,000 that God whittles down to 300. Then he has to fight the battle, and he does it in a super weird way, and God wins. Or should we talk about Barak, the commander of Israel, who with 10,000, a tiny number, goes up against an army that was innumerable of the sand of the seashore and wins. What about Samson? You remember him? The wild, bizarre deliverer of Israel who seemed to do everything wrong. Remember that guy? You go, well, what faith did he express? He told a kid, put me between two pillars. Why? And you go, well, because he knew he was strong. Nope. He had already had his eyes gouged out and he had already been in prison for a really long time. He lost the ability to be strong. But he knew that God gives second chances. And with faith, he put his hands on the pillar And he said, son, you might want to go somewhere else. And he shoved the pillars down and killed more Philistines in his death than he did in his life. Shall we talk about Jephthah, the outcast warrior who led Israel in a victory over the Ammonites in a mighty way? Of David, who he studied all last year, the shepherd who turned king, who was the apple of God's eye and the greatest king of all Israel. What about Samuel, the prophet of which the books are even named after, one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history, and the prophets who through faith, believing and acting as if what God said was true despite circumstances, did the impossible. They conquered kingdoms like the promised land and more. They enforced justice like when the kings cleaned house due to defying popular vote. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. And you go, that's Daniel. I know that one. Right? And Benaiah and Samson. Why? Because they fought lions and ripped them apart with their bare hands. How did they do that? The power of God. They 
quenched the power of fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They escaped the edge of the sword on the run like David. They were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight like Joshua did on the battlefield as the sun stood still in the sky. Women received back their dead from resurrection under Elijah and Elisha. Both of them raised back sons to life. Some were tortured as upon a rack, the word suggests. And I'm going to get to that in a moment. Refusing to accept release, speaking of martyrs, so that they might rise again to a better life. They were looking at what God wanted, not their creature comfort. Others suffered mocking and flogging. That's all the persecution through history that were beat up and made fun of like the prophet Micah and the prophet Jeremiah. Even chains and imprisonment of which has been thousands upon tens of thousands upon hundreds of thousands. They were stoned, killed by their own people. Zechariah the prophet was stoned by the Jews for telling the truth. They were sawn in two. Tradition says that the prophet Isaiah was sawn in two with a wooden saw while alive. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. What are all those references to? They're in reference to a period that you're probably not familiar with. So I'll tell you a story. In between the Old Testament and the New Testament are 400 years of what we call silence. However, it is not silence. There were many historical books written during that period. Some of them are called the book of Maccabees. In that period of time, a lot occurred. The story of Hanukkah occurred during that period. In that time, there was a leader that rose up that ruled Syria by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus was a self-obsessed, psychotic leader who wanted to be more powerful and rule more area than he could. He was just above the Israel region, and he tried to run that whole area like a Greek god. He was very into the Greek mindset. All that area hated that. They resisted that. He wasn't a super popular guy. He decides he wants more territory, assembles a massive army, marches down to attack Egypt, and receives a letter in the mail. It's from the Roman Empire. He did not work for the Roman Empire. They were the most powerful force on the face of the earth. They said, I suggest you go home unless you want us to come visit you and shut you down. Well, they didn't even have to show up. He knew that he can't take on the Roman Empire. So he shut down base and went back home. Problem is, you just humiliated a guy with an ego the size of Godzilla. Humiliated, he goes home. What does he walk by on the way home? But Jerusalem. He takes out his wrath and aggression on them. Kills 60,000 Jews. Sends 10,000 into captivity. Goes into the temple. And just to humiliate the Jews sacrifices a pig on the altar of the temple. Now you have to remember that's not kosher. Remember all the kosher laws and everything like that? It's sacrilege. It's blasphemy. He sacrifices a pig there, takes all the holy sites where they would do all the prayers and make some brothels. Why? To humiliate the Jews. Destroys all scripture, begins to beat the Jews, and treat them as slaves. 
In that time, the Jews had to go into hiding and they hid in caves and all the things that we're talking about here. The author of Hebrews is looking back at all the intertestamental writings. He's reflecting on all this. In that time, there was two stories that specifically killed people on racks, which that word that I referred to earlier is referring to. One of those stories is the stories of the seven brothers. They were brought before Antiochus's men, and they were told to eat pork as a defy to their God. To shut down and say, we don't want to serve the God of Yahweh, we will bow to Antiochus. They said, absolutely not. The first son, the first brother, was whipped and put on the wheel, a tympanum. It's a rack, a wheel, almost like a water wheel, where you're chained up like this, and what it does is it rolls you and dislocates all the bones in your body in a slow fashion. He was completely dislocated in every limb, then they set the wheel on fire and continued to turn him until he died. The second brother was tied. They put on spiked iron gloves on both sides and punched him and pulled at him until his skin was removed. The third brother had his hands dislocated and his feet on the racks. They tore him apart and then they flayed him alive, which means you cut the skin and then pull it off. The fourth brother had his tongue cut out and he was tortured to death. The fifth was bound to the wheel and tore him apart. The sixth was crushed on the wheel, but they cooked a fire under it and roasted him alive. And they burned his back and sides with pokers. The seventh brother was roasted alive on a frying pan. None of them would turn away from their God, Yahweh. Faith. Do we have faith like that? That you look forward to something greater than even your own, what, saving? Protecting your own life. We have a fight or flight mentality, yet faith sees beyond all of it. To something beyond. They wanted to adhere to the Yahweh, the God that they believed and loved. Despite what it cost them. That is faith. It says in verse 39, And all these, though commended through their faith, they received a well done, good and faithful servant, did not receive what was promised. They did not receive the creature comforts of this world. They were not rescued. Since God provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What's the point in all of this? The point is, is that there are some on this earth that live a different existence, and I would like that to be us. If I was to tell you all the stories of, of how I've seen or engaged with angelic beings or talk to you about demonic interactions I've had, then I had all of you that have ever had interactions like that stand up, share your account and your story. We now have a couple hours of talking about that. I can guarantee every one of you will walk out of this looking for something new. And you will begin to see the supernatural. Why? Because we're atmospheric beings and we tune into different things when we're presented a different way of looking at it. In the same way, in studying and reading the Hall of Faith and studying these men and women who did the impossible for God makes me believe a different world exists. And when I walk out, I do not then see the limitations. I see walls that can tumble down. 
I see bad guys who only rule for a moment. But I see that a God is on the throne and he gets to make the rules. Let's close in prayer and I'll give you your final challenge. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for boosting up our faith and infusing us with power. That, Lord, that we might honor you, that we might live as if you are present and active, that we might change the way that we believe so that we might live a different way. Lord, make us men and women of faith to do something that almost seems extraordinarily silly in the world's eyes because our eyes are tracking not on the waves but on our Jesus. Lord, allow us to believe that we too can walk on water. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's your challenge for the week. Make a decision for Christ this week that costs you something. Step out in faith. Give it to someone you love or someone in need. Take the time to spend with God you would otherwise use on yourself. But make a sacrifice that shows that God matters to you. Amen.